First, I want to congratulate you for making it through the second 24 hours. Sometimes the second day is swampier. For, was there anyone in the room who felt more swampy today than yesterday? It's really quite natural. We often think of this, at least on our side, as a, as a, a detox center the first few days. And, it's, and it takes a while to, to unwind our uh, deep contraction from the speed of our lives and, and mostly the way we think. And I, in a few minutes ago, I titled tonight's talk, It's All About Me, because that's really what's been um, what's been going on for most of us, uh, a kind of, uh, I call it profound drama uh, going on in our minds. Uh, but I wanted to begin with, a, in the spirit of talking about, it's all about me, uh, by giving a sequel to um, Calvin and Hobbes from last night. And just a, a, a brief review, Calvin is hanging out with Hobbes in last night's episode, and he says to Calvin, um, the problem with people is they don't, um, they don't know how to appreciate the present moment. And he says, I, for one, take great pleasure being right here, right now, doing what I'm doing. And Hobbes then responded as Gil shared, but of course you're supposed to be at school. So we look at what it is that makes it difficult for us to, to um, be right here, right now, doing what we're doing. And a lot of it is the, uh, the construction project that goes on in our mind, the constructing of our, of our view about ourselves and, and the tendency to really inhabit those views. So here's part two, and you get a little window in what it's really all about. Hobbes, this time, begins the conversation saying, aren't you supposed to be doing homework now? And Calvin says, I quit doing homework. Homework is bad for my self-esteem. <laughs> it is? Sure. It sends the message that I don't know enough. <laughs> All that emphasis on the right answers makes me feel bad when I get them wrong. So instead of trying to learn, I'm just concentrating on liking myself the way I am. <laughs> Your self-esteem is enhanced by remaining an ignoramus, Hobbes. <laughs> and Calvin responds, please, let's call it informationally impaired. <laughs> Either way, it's, it's, a, um, it's a story. The whole of the spawning of all those actions, or non-action in this case, based on a particular uh, sense that he has of himself. And I know that each of you today, as you went through this day, were visited by your, um, your I was thinking of the top tunes we often talk about, the way that our mind plays certain tunes, planning, remembering, judging. But you were visited by whatever tune that plays that, that reminds you who you are or who you imagine yourself to be, a, a particular kind of 
narrative or that commentary that we've spoken about. It's usually about, about you as the, as the center of that, um, of that drama. And it becomes clear that it, it's really only in our mind's reactions and its ideas, its views, its opinions, uh, its stories about ourselves that we create the seeds of, um, of dissatisfaction and suffering. And in reality, and you may have sensed this as you went through the day, that the difference between, you could say, bondage and freedom, the difference between feeling bound and being free, is the difference between being carried along, caught up, believing your views and your opinions, your self-ideas, and on one hand, on one side, that's the, the suffering side, and the other side being recognizing, waking up to say, oh, this is the, this is the, the how am I doing story. And this is the, this is the self-critical story. This is the uh, something should be different than the way it is. Did any of you have any of those today? This slight shift from, from being carried along by to recognizing is really the, um, maybe the most profound shift that happens in our practice. And it really is the promise and the invitation of mindful attention to begin to shine through, to shine a light on those very notions about ourselves that are so, one, one phrase that's often used, those cherished views, those views that we so tether ourselves to that, that make convincing convincing reasons why we can't be happy right now. And there's such a difference between being um, harshly critical toward ourselves, and I got a few notes about people feeling really critical, and people mentioned it in some of the groups. There's such a difference between being just absorbed in that kind of reaction and recognizing, oh, this is judging, this is criticizing. The difference between being as many of you probably directed toward us today, who knows, but uh, there is a tendency to, to get quite, as our hearts and bodies soften, our hearts tend to open, and th- through that opening process, we touch into places that are very sticky, and there's a lot of aversion. Did any of you have aversion today? Any of you project that aversion on the teachers, the teachings, the, the place, the well, there's such a difference between, between remembering somebody, making them real in your mind, and then planning your revenge and attacking them and blaming them. There's a difference between that and, and saying, oh, there's the, there's the revenge thought. There's the, there's the aggression. Oh, and the aggression feels like this. And interestingly enough, not only is that moment of recognition in that moment of recognition, you're no longer bound by whatever that particular state of mind is. But then it's possible to recognize and to feel for yourself to gain a certain kind of confidence that that state of being that seemed so real and tormenting, so absolutely absorbing and convincing, in the light of awareness, it reveals itself as as a changing condition. 
I know probably many of you today wanted from probably 30 minutes into a sitting till the end, there was probably a very strong idea that your happiness depended on the bell ringing. <laughs> and you had felt a strong desire for the bell to ring. And to the degree that you were just caught up in that, what happens to your body when you're caught up in that desire for the bell to ring? The body is kind of held hostage, hanging, waiting, hoping that the bell will ring. And of course, when the bell rings, and we, we all go, ah. And we then start to think that, that, the, um, that the bell you know, made it possible for us to feel that relief. And so the next time, we still wait for the bell to ring. And, but then one day, we wake up while we're waiting for the bell to ring. And we go, oh, this is what waiting is like. This is what wanting is like. And as we experience the wanting, whether the bell rings or not, the wanting reveals itself as a changing experience, as a, just a state of being that moves through the body, takes a little shape in our mind, and then it passes away. And sometimes we find complete ease of well-being, and the bell hasn't even rung yet. So the invitation is to keep waking up. And all those moments when it seems that uh, these very simple moments of lifting, moving, placing, turning the handle on the door, or, or eating this bite, every one of those m moments keeps encouraging, keeps, keeps strengthening, keeps planting the seed of that waken, awakening process. And so then we start to wake up a little more, even in the midst of one of our torments. So I just want to share briefly a, an instruction that's given by a lot of teachers, and then I want to move on to the body of the, of the talk. What you can do with anything, and you can do it from, it's probably most impactful when you do it with, when you use this, um, this tool with something that's uh, uncomfortable or difficult, but you can use it anytime, and it's an acronym that's, um, that's been helpful to a lot of people, and the acronym is RAIN. So the acronym RAIN essentially means recognition. acceptance or allowing, investigation, and non-identification or non-clinging or non-attachment, however you want to translate that. So with every experience that you become aware of, especially, let's say, a particular kind of mental state that feels uncomfortable in your body, to recognize it. And sometimes we use that soft mental label, uh, sadness, sadness, or or fear, fear, and then to accept that it's there, allow that to be there, and then to investigate it. And when we say investigate, there are lots of different ways to investigate uh, in our life. And our, we are curious as human beings. Our, it's our nature to want to know and understand things. But meditatively, we, we do it in a very unique way, a very specific way of not so much reflecting on things and thinking about them. That's a different kind of, of of mindfulness, but when we're in the in the flow of a meditative uh, of meditative practice of a retreat like this, we use a kind of investigate investigation that just wants to see how the experience that is presenting itself, 
how it behaves, what happens to it when it's noticed. Does it get stronger? Does it stay the same? Does it vanish? What does it lead to? So you begin to notice that there is a sequence of unfolding experiences. You begin to see even with that moment of, of planning revenge that you begin to see, ah, that arises and it passes. And it's not me or not mine because it's just doing its own thing. And we can come to know that for ourselves. And through the knowing of that, there's a, 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 re, a letting go, a releasing, relinquishing of that tight grasp. Unfortunately, our practice, as one of my teachers uh, used to say, for 35 million years has been to not just recognize and not to accept, not to investigate, and not to let go or non-cling. It has been to somewhat, in fact, very mindlessly react to simple moments of experience, which there are countless billions of them all the time, react to certain experiences, the experiences that are by their nature either pleasant or unpleasant or neither, unple neither pleasant or unpleasant, basically of three varieties, to unknowingly, because of uh, not really paying attention to this, unknowingly react to the pleasant with a fleeting, a little fleeting reaction of grasping, react to the unpleasant with a fleeting reaction of pushing away, and to the neutral of ignoring, of not seeing, making something out of something that's not really there. And this tendency of mind to, to grasp and push away which you probably noticed in all kinds of forms today, produces a kind of charge, a kind of tension. And this tension, this charge, you could say it creates a feeling in our body. We tense up. When you're in a state of waiting for the bell to ring, what does your body feel like? Does it feel at ease? Or does it feel tight? When it feels tight, when it contracts, it's as though the body, it's, I, I, the image that came to me today was like a, a tube of toothpaste. That moment of contraction is like squeezing a tube of toothpaste. And when you squeeze it hard enough, what happens? The toothpaste pops out. In our own flow of experience, when we miss these moments of liking and disliking, different reactions in the mind, produces a kind of tension, then creates a pressure and it spawns a kind of discharge that we might call discursive thinking. Any, anyone have that today? And this discursive thinking feels compulsive, like it's, like it's, being, it's just being driven. And it's often, the, as Gill was describing, that sense of the pyramid being upside down today, this discharge, we become quite top-heavy, quite, um, quite fixated in this world of, of discursive thinking. And it colors our reality in such a way that we're 
no longer actually seeing things the way they are, but seeing through the lens of, of the elaborations on our liking and disliking and our ignorance to what's actually going on. Because after all, what is really going on in every moment? What's actually going on in every moment, I mean, we could talk and we could speak a million ways about this, but really there are only six experiences that ever happen. And they repeat themselves over and over. There is seeing, the consciousness of seeing. There's hearing. There's smelling. There's tasting. There's touching or sensing. And there's thinking and the consciousness of, that arises with these. And these six experiences arise and they pass away over and over. Everything else that we experience is an elaboration on this. And often that elaboration gets so far removed from this simplicity, from here. It can be as simple as what your direct experience is as you're listening right now. If you just let yourself be here completely, what is that direct experience? Hard to capture in words, isn't it? But our mind will often look to our memory and it will create a little... And it's a wonderful, creative thing that we're able to do. It's extraordinary. It's, a, it's one of those... Uh, there's a Tibetan word that says, Amaho, how amazing. How does that happen? But our mind creates some kind of sim- symbolic elaboration on some conceptual overlay on this moment. What can you say about this? What's it like after your last thought and before your next one? So it's likely that over the course of even these two days that you've quieted down more than you know, probably a lot. You've, you look uh, you look beautiful to me. Mm-hmm. You, you can't really tell from where you're sitting that you're already that you can actually see the the light beginning to come back into your eyes and um, and I can. T- it's funny every time I do this and I, I look out in the room and I just start tuning into the to your presence. I, I can. It's so obvious to me that you're not whoever you imagine yourself to be. <laughs> Whatever you've been saying to yourself, it could never capture that, uh, that suchness, that, that indescribable presence that you are. And even those words don't quite touch it. So maybe you've touched into, um, you've touched this kind of natural silence or peace, and you're probably, your senses have gotten quite open, that your sight and sights are more vivid and your sounds are more sounds are more clear and tastes. Have you noticed the way that bursts of flavor have gotten, you know, almost phantasmagorical, you know, and smells and sensations, a range of sensations that you've noticed. And it's also likely that you have become uh, more familiar with the this unbidden 
narrative that, that plays through your mind. That how, how amazing it is that we're asked to do this simple act of drawing our attention to the simplicity of our body, of our breath, coming out of the stream of success, of, of distress, and just, just connecting with this simplicity, but completely without any prompting at all, all hell breaks loose. Just the mind just starts generating, the toothpaste gets, tube gets squeezed, and it just starts spawning this, this very convincing narrative. And it's, and probably many of you have heard this before, but it said that as we sit here, that we have uninvited something like 65,000 thoughts every day, and that 90% are repeats from the day before. So this is very much based on past causes and conditions. And so that's why it's, you know, there, and this notion of taking it personally as though I, I'm, I'm the agent who made those thoughts. If I had, if I, if there was an agent of those of the thinking, I would. There wouldn't be 99% of the thoughts. Much rather have a little peace and quiet. But unbidden they come. And again and again, when these thoughts go unnoticed, we're we're born. We're literally born into a a. Um, a kind of story where we inhabit this world of the of the imagined meditator, the imagined seeker, the one you imagine yourself to be, probably really longs to have things different than, than the way they are, longs to be at home, longs to be free, and we we somehow lose sight of the the fact that um, somehow in that in that drama. Well, I like the metaphor of, of the wave in the ocean. We, we're like that one wave that arises on the ocean in our imagination, but we, we imagine ourselves to be that one wave that's somehow gotten separated from the ocean, <clears throat> not realizing, not remembering, losing touch with the fact that the wave is never separated from the ocean. And so our mind creates this enormous drama again and again, born again and again. The, the Buddha said in one of his songs, he says, dukkha is birth again and again. Suffering is again and again. Uh, that's why he wanted to get off of that wheel, not, not be so caught up in this, this dream because it obscures, it overlooks the... the what's sometimes called an open secret, that the, that the wave has never been separated from the ocean. And one of my teachers used to say that, you, that each of us is neck deep in grace. But our minds, we've convinced ourselves so much that, that happiness is to be found uh, through becoming someone different, getting somewhere, going somewhere. And this action, this drama, this strategy, this project plays as this compulsive narrative in our mind, this compulsion to exaggerate on the simplicity of being, 
here and now is called, there's a name for it, it's called papancha. And all papancha is loosely translated as uh, complication or proliferation. It's that proliferating of, of thoughts, obscuring that, that basic uh, reality. Here's a few translations. The unbidden going of the mind away from the present to imagined experiences or objects. Or this one is a little bit more uh, funny, if you ask me. The propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. <laughs> See, once we are born into one of these, um, I'll call it a papancha storm, we are we're literally, I, I know Gill is in the past, I've heard him use the expression, we've literally entered a kind of virtual world of, uh, within our mind. And that virtual world, and then of course it colors the way our immediate reality feels, it, it produces this sense of, of suspended happiness, suspended well-being. I can't be okay now. And it colors the present moment as though, and I'm absolutely certain that you experience this today, it makes the present moment feel like it's really not quite enough. And I like the way that um, Eckhart Tolle puts it, he says it color that, that our tendencies to be lost in, um, in papancha, and he doesn't use that word, he says it, it affects our relationship to the present moment where the present moment becomes a means to get somewhere else. That's kind of sad when I say that, since this is the only place there is. Anything other than this is imagination. Where is the where is the past where we dwell so much? Now. Where is the future? Now. We realize when we sit and we come out of this for a few moments, we realize that these notions of past and future are really simply abstractions created in the present moment. They're just thoughts. And we can literally live inhabiting that imaginary world of past and future, even the imaginary world of present and miss our, our true home, miss our, I like to say, our Buddha body. It's always here and always now. It's the very presence through which you're now perceiving. So the, our papancha creates this sense of the present moment being a means to an end or the present moment becomes an obstacle, or it becomes the enemy in all the different ways. I don't want to elaborate too much on that. There are three main kinds of, of papancha. The first one, and there are, I've seen different variations on this list, but the first one is called tanha papancha. Tanha is the Pali word that's associated with uh, craving or thirst or hunger, uh, more that sense of that kind of desire that has a, a kind of uh, compulsion quality to it. And it's, it's, that, um, it's that little trigger that starts with a, 
For example, many of you probably, even in the course of these two days, may have seen somebody on the retreat that, that you found that you experienced them, something about them as pleasant. And before you knew it, your mind within maybe 30 seconds had, con had constructed the perfect romance with travels, children, <laughs> old age, probably even divorce. But all the, the full elaboration where that person became the, the secret to your happiness. And probably, it, I know from in my own experience, because I had, it's traditionally called a VR, a Vipassana romance. <laughs> and I've had my own VRs over the years, and it, was, it got to the point where it was extremely painful to be so, to have such a suspended sense of well-being that it depended so much on that, that person uh, filling that, that hole that gets opened up when we get caught in that internal drama. Tanha Papancha also refers to not just the craving for pleasure, but the aversion to the unpleasant. And so the, there is also the reverse version of the, of the VR, which we call the VV, Vipassana Vendetta, where there's <laughs> someone or something that really triggered that disliking, and that disliking hardened into a very strong aversion, hatred, rage, and a cascade of, of blaming thoughts and assumptions that that person is the secret to your misery. And if only they could be different. This is Tanha Pancha. Gil jogged my memory about the uh, last night about the um, days of 49er football. <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> And I was reminded of a yogi who had this kind of um, condi very strongly conditioned habit of spinning out about, uh, about football. He was, uh, was born in a state in the United States where the football team was really the only show in town. And in this state, it was really like the religion. And this yogi went to a three-month retreat and about two months into the three-month retreat, the annual game with the big, with the big, um, their major opponent, their rivalry, uh, came, and the desire arose in the mind to figure out a way to be able to watch that football game. And so this yogi was practicing very diligently and was visiting with their teacher and um, talking about this. And the teacher didn't say, "Don't do it," and the, it just kept talking, and somehow through the grapevine, someone overheard that this person had this very strong craving, and out of compassion, silently wrote them a note and offered to drive them to the nearest town, which happened to be 40 miles away, <laughs> where the plan was set to rent a motel room and, <laughs> and sit there silently watching the football game. <laughs> Attempting to maintain continuous mindfulness. 
and the person actually uh, did this, and, <laughs> and their team lost the game, and they, and they, like anyone else who has, at that moment of realizing that you've gotten what you wanted, they had that, um, that process uh, arise again of one of the ways that the Buddha described the process of, of birth and, and death, one takes birth again as the one who has gotten that pleasurable experience, and it has ceased to be pleasurable. And then after having been driven the, uh, the, in the wake of that experience, there's a sense of awkwardness and weirdness and, you know, what, you know, what was that all about? And of course, in the case of this yogi, they, it inspired them to come back and you know, really put their tush on the cush, you know, really <laughs> get into it. And I have to admit that the yogi was me. <laughs> I could not uh, attribute that to the imagined other tonight. It's, just a, it's more the one I imagine myself to be. This kind of papancha, which all of us uh, have, it's possible to begin to, to notice this. This is why we speak about it. It's to begin to recognize that, ah, oh, this is papancha. And, perhaps, and the, the power of the mindfulness uh, begins to um, give us some space of choice whether or not to keep following this, to be able to use the recognition of the papancha as a, as a cause that never gets wasted use the recognition as a reminder to put our mind back in our body, to ask ourselves, is there really anything missing right now? You can ask yourself the same thing right this moment. Again, after your last thought has ceased about what you need to be happy and before the next one arises, What's missing? <coughs> this is what uh, one of my favorite teachers, Sri Nisargadatta, says. As long as we believe that we need things to make us happy, we shall also believe that in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. Pleasure is a distraction, for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy, when in reality, it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as, there is nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of all practice is to reach a point when this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual, ever-present experience. Which experience? The experience of being empty, open, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, or having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home 
have to read the rest. Your true home is in nothingness, in emptiness of all notions, ideas of self. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. Our culture reinforces the uh, need for things to be happy every day. Uh, and with its advertising, its, its, its marketing machine, an advertisement that was just passed to me recently, it's actually printed in 1998, but nothing new under the sun. It's that things haven't changed so much. This is a person sitting, and they've actually co-opted, the marketing machine has co-opted our, our spiritual yearnings. And so there's a fellow who's sitting in lotus position, and behind him is a pile of stuff. And the caption reads, Spence put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. <laughs> That's why he also has a new Ford Ranger. <laughs> it gets more cynical as you go along. So he, so he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. <laughs> Last but not least, he says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. While I'm still on the Tanha Papancha, since it's just so much part of our, our culture and And it's, when it, we have this conversation, it's important not to adopt a view about craving or desires, but to really explore how they operate in our own minds. Uh, as soon as you adopt a view that somehow craving or desire is bad, then pretty soon you become irritating, both to yourself and other people around you, and kind of like a fundamentalist, you know, Buddhist, and that's not so helpful. But to really look at the effect of the wanting mind in your own life, to feel what it's like when you're in a state of wanting, to notice what it's like when there's a, a kind of freedom from wanting. But to really see it for what it is, to be curious about it. A very uh, poignant, both humorous and poignant poem about the the, um, the dramas that play in our mind around Papancha <clears throat> is a poem by a fellow named George Bilger called Unwise Purchases. They sit around the house, not doing much of anything, the box set of the complete works of Verdi, unopened, the complete Proust unread, the French cult cut silk shirts which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man that would wear a French cut silk shirt. <laughs> 
the reflector telescope I thought would unlock the mysteries of the heavens, but which I only used once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road, <laughs> and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining crab nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. <laughs> I like to think that one thing led to another between them, and that by tape six or so, they're happily married and raising a bilingual <laughs> child in Seville or Terre Haute. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I've constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who <laughs> who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias, <laughs> then lives with a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner. Oh, and I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes. On the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set. A woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming has always dreamed of meeting. <laughs> and while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen fixing up a little risotto, enjoying, enjoying a modest cabernet while taking, talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. So all of these forms of papancha have as their central character the one called me. I call it the imagined me not the presence and unique individuality that looks at me right now, that is in this room, the full, but the imaginary version that plays in our mind. And the second kind of papancha that, it's called ditti papancha, which ditti means views, but I think of the, just the general, um, of all the views and opinions, the, the strongest view is this view of an abiding entity called me, of, again, the imagined version, not the, not the living, um, alive version. <clears throat> and that version of ourselves that usually plays in our mind incessantly spinning webs of, of, of torment is, because that version usually has some flavor of that there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong here. I'm either too this or too that. I'm not enough. I'm too much. I'm, I'm too this. I'm too anxious. I'm too um, whatever it might be. And everybody has a, a version of it that tends to, to color our present experience in such a way that it becomes an obstacle or a means to an end or an enemy. And actually, I'm reminded of today in one of the groups, 
um, I hope the person doesn't mind me mentioning them, they were describing themselves as uh, and asking very sincere questions about how we've gotten so um, uh, wound up and our minds so busy. And she characterized herself as, uh, as a busy person, as a rushing person. And I imagine and I assume that she's, there is some truth in the, to this pattern repeating itself. But then when I asked her to actually pay attention to what was ex she was experiencing on present evidence, she, there was no way she could find the rushing one. What she found was a moment of peace and ease. And I encouraged her to start noticing those and as, as a way of kind of cutting through the tendency to adopt those beliefs and then just run with them. And once we've taken birth in that belief that there's something wrong, then our mind must, out of love, find a strategy to somehow become okay. If we're not okay, I have to become okay. And pretty soon our mind is, our well-being is tethered to that imagined future that never arrives. Why? Because as Alan Watts says, time is always now. And it put, and this is the trance of the, of Sakya Ditti, the, the view of self. And the, and the proliferation of thoughts that go around this imagination imagine one and and it has causes us to lose sight of the immediate one the intimate one the present one that you are in truth i got the i know there are many of you who have not um heard this story because i uh, there are many of you i've never met before and i told this to, and I know there are people in here who've heard this story, but it really was brought home to me the power of certain kinds of views about ourselves. And, and um, in this particular little vignette, I, was, I had gone to see this, um, this teacher in India named H.W.L. Punja, and he was, um, he had a, an amazing ability to, to see right where you were you were lost or deluded in some way. And unfortunately, when I arrived to see him, I very, um, either the day before or so, I picked up some kind of intense virus as I, I seemed to be in those early years of going to, to India a lot. I was a magnet for anything that could go wrong with the body. And in this case, I, I was just expelling from every possible opening and uh, high fever and and, and my mind, not only was I experiencing the immediate symptoms of such unpleasantness, but my mind had taken off. I had taken birth as the, uh, as the one who was extremely ill. And so I went through my illness, and, I, and he, was, he sent messages over and asked about me, and he would send me food and, and chunks of cheese and, and this and that. And, <clears throat> And then finally, I felt well enough to go to see him. He was living across the Ganges River in this town called Hardwar. And the day that I went over to see him, I pulled my sick body out of the room. I was feeling a little better, and I kind of dragged it along the side of the river and crossed the, had to go down a couple bridges, crossed the bridge into the, into the part of the village where 
where he was living and I bought some bananas from a vendor and that seemed like great effort and then these monkeys jumped out of trees and took my bananas and, <laughs> and the, the whole thing was high drama and I was very busy feeling uncomfortable and, and I finally arrived at the, um, at the teacher's place and I had to walk up a few flights of stairs and there were just about six of us sitting around the room and, and he looked at me, and he, as he often did, in a very, you know, very immediate. You know, he, there was no wavering. And it's something about someone who, who has cultivated that kind of presence that, that you really feel like they're taking you in. And he said, how are you feeling? And I said, well, I'm feeling much better, but I'm still sick. And he looked at me, and he said, where is sick? <laughs> and I looked, and I couldn't find sick and it dawned on me instantly that I had become so busy being sick I had taken birth in the in sickness and with the with the seeing through of that identity uh, this sense of vitality a kind of rush of of vitality became, came back and I still had some symptoms but the the identity was gone and so it's so we don't realize maybe and appreciate the physical impact, the emotional impact of these repeated ideas about ourselves, and especially the ones that not just get repeated during a course of a, of a four or five day illness, but the ones that repeat themselves over and over in the course of our lives. So of course, when you notice your own cherished view and the way your, your body has formed around it, it ideally should be the cause of great mercy and compassion because all of this was set in motion before you knew what was going on. And if there was strong awareness and uh, uh, strong understanding of what, what you were believing and, and building a monument to, you probably wouldn't do it. But these identities obscure the okayness of this moment, of here. Which is really hard to describe. But somehow when we are as one teacher put it, I think it's Nisargadatta, when, I think in this passage, he says, when your mind is free of its preoccupations, even for a moment, your mind becomes quiet. And if you don't disturb that quiet, and you stay in it, you realize that it's permeated with a light and a love that you've never known, yet you recognize it at once as your nature. Once you've been through that, you won't be the same person again. Your mind will fill up again, <clears throat> you'll follow that chain of delusion. But if, you, if the effort is sustained, eventually your life, the bonds of, this, of delusion will end and your life will become, I think as he puts it, supremely concentrated in the present. And even the present is not a I mean, it's a useful term for communication, but even that can feel like a box.
Where is the present now? As Rumi puts it in his poem called Tending Two Shops, live in the nowhere that you came from. Even though you have an address here, you have eyes that see from that nowhere and eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops. You run back and forth. Try to close, try to close the one that's a fearful trap, getting always smaller, checkmate this way, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. Every moment that we are simply mindful, simply present, not extending, not elaborating, not, or any moment that we wake up after we've been caught in an elaboration, that moment of waking up, that moment of mindfulness, is really one and the same as the free swimming fish. Because it's a moment that's out of time, not dwelling in the past. Because as Punjaji says, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. The boulders of the past rest on your chest and destroy your life and freedom. Remove them by remaining present. Freedom waits, but most are engaged with something else. Don't tie yourself to anything in the past or the future because it will not work. Be attached only to this moment. When you hold to something other than your true nature, you will be disturbed. <coughs> By holding attachments to transient things, you declare to yourself that you are not the fullness in which all is. We will continue in spite of the Glimpses, we will continue to want to be somebody. This is the habit of mind. And so not to make it the enemy either, but to enjoy the way that we, that we self, as <clears throat> enjoy the way that we um, want to be somebody. Um, or want to be nobody. That's often <laughs> the meditator's trap. One day a rabbi, be done in a moment, one day a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees, and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by the example of spiritual humility, joins the rabbi on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The Seamus, or the custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two, on his knees calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, look who thinks he's nobody. <laughs> so it's, you just have to laugh at, the, at this attempt to become somebody uh, or nobody. And, be very gentle when you see how your mind spins. And especially around the papancha, the last kind of papancha that I'll just briefly mention, the called mana papancha, 
or otherwise mana means conceit. And in, in the language of the, of the Buddha Dharma, conceit is comparable or similar to what we call the comparing mind. That tendency of mind to put ourselves above, below, or equal to others. That whole imaginary creation of I'm better or I'm less than. And it's so it's such a plague when we're caught in that. And so much colors our reality and shrinks our being. I noticed that I have to admit last night, because we all have comparing mind, that the Buddha talked about, as far as I can tell from the teachings, that it was the la it's the last uh, fetter or tendency of mind to be uprooted in our evolution, in our awakening process. And I noticed last night, I was sitting listening to Gil, and he's, you know, I, I don't need to say much, but he was so clear, so eloquent. There was such depth and precision. There was just a beauty to his talk. And I could feel my mind going, hmm, that's, how can I, you know, it's a tough act to follow. And I could feel myself shrinking and shrinking. And of course, I was being mindful of it, fortunately. And, because, and it's also an occupational hazard. There's just a natural tendency to compare. <laughs> And fortunately, by being mindful of the comparing mind, it, um, it, it loses some of its power. Just as the Native American said, to be able to name something uh, takes the power away from it. So to be able to notice that. Just have to share one of my favorite little stories about Mana Papancha, and then uh, we'll, I'll close the talk. This is a, a piece written by Ed Brown, author of the Tassajara Bread Book. He said, when I first started cooking at Tassajara, I had a problem. I couldn't get my biscuits to come out the way that the, they were supposed to. I'd follow the recipe and try variations, but nothing worked. These biscuits just didn't measure up. Growing up, I had made two kinds of biscuits, one from Bisquick and the other from Pillsbury. For the Bisquick biscuits, you added milk to the mix and then blobbed the dough and spoonfuls on the pan you didn't even need to roll them out. The biscuits from Pillsbury came in a kind of cardboard can. You wrapped the can on the corner of the counter and it popped open. <laughs> then you twisted the can open more, but the pre-made biscuits on the pan, put the pre-made biscuits on the pan and baked them. I really like those Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> Isn't that what biscuits should taste like? Mine just weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing the ideas we get about what biscuits should taste like or what a life should look like. Compared to what? Canned biscuits from Pillsbury? <laughs> Leave it to Beaver? People who ate my biscuits could extol their virtues, eating one after another, but to me, these perfectly good biscuits just weren't right. Finally, one day came a shifting into place, an awakening. Not right compared to what? Oh, my word. I've been trying to make canned Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> Then came an exquisite moment of actually tasting my biscuits without comparing them to some previously hidden standard. They were weedy, flaky, buttery, sunny, earthy, real. As Rilke's sonnet proclaims, they were incomparably alive, present, vibrant, in fact, much more satisfying than any memory. These occasions can be so stunning, so liberating. These moments when you realize your life is just fine as it is, thank you. Only the insidious comparison to a beautifully prepared, beautifully packaged product made it seem insufficient. 
trying to produce a biscuit, a life with no dirty bowls, no messy feelings, no depression, no anger, was so frustrating than savoring, actually tasting the present moment of experience, how much more complex and multifaceted, how unfathomable, a thought, a feeling, ants crawling on the ground in the sunlight. As, student, as meditation students, we spent years trying to make it look right, trying to cover the faults, conceal the messes. We knew that the Bisquick Zen student looked like calm, buoyant, cheerful, <clears throat> energetic, deep, profound. Our motto, as one of my friends says, was looking good. We've all done it, tried to attain perfection, tried to look good as a husband, a wife, a parent. Yes, I have it together. I'm not greedy or jealous or angry. You're the one who does those things, and if you didn't do them, I wouldn't do them either. You started it. <laughs> Don't peek behind my cover, we say, and if you do, keep it to yourself. Well, the heck with it. I say, wake up and smell the coffee. How about savoring the good old home cooking, the biscuits of today? So let's just sit quietly. Thank you for your long enduring attention. Uh, we have about 25 minutes for walking practice. So please continue and enjoy your present moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.